Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Durham University Center for Catholic Studies, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in November 2019 at a conference on the Franciscan legacy, a conference hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies and sponsored by the Franciscan families of the UK and Ireland. This lecture by Richard Cross is entitled Love and Union with the Divine in the Franciscan Tradition. We've had most early Franciscan theologists, can to say, not all of it, but most of it, uh, was university theology, so it was dense, very technical, medieval theology, scholastic theology is a very uh, complex and difficult topic, and most of the texts that I've come across um, are hard to understand, just because they're uh, deeply uh, technical. I'm going to give you a bit of a taste and what I hear is that if you use a friendly subject, it might be a subject. So for those who aren't familiar with what early Franciscan theology is actually like, you're going to see it. For those of you who are, I hope at least I'll give you a text that you haven't looked at or seen before. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. So I've called it um, Love and Union with the Divine in the Franciscan tradition. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take two contrasting cases, the Dominican, Thomas Aquinas, well known to everyone, and the very significant early Franciscan theologian, uh, Matthew of Aquasparta. Uh, Matthew, so just to put this in context, we're Aquinas, based 1225 or thereabouts to 1274. Matthew was born in 1240. Uh, he studies in Paris um, at the end of the 12. Sixties goes on to be a professor at Paris and uh, in Italy, but then at the uh, Roman Curia. Um, becomes Minister General of the Franciscan Order and dies in 1302. And he wrote a wonderful series of questions on, on the um, um, on the beatified soul. And uh, in these questions, he's got various targets because early Franciscan theology, like all scholastic theology, was highly oppositional. It was highly dialectical, it was highly artistic. <coughs> One of his targets is Thomas Aquinas. So what I'm going to do is look at the, as it were, the debate between the two. Um, Aquinas is dead by the time that Matthew's working on these questions, so he doesn't get the chance to reply. Um, that was often the way. Um, you can judge for yourself uh, what you think of the debate. If, um, how far has the handout got? Okay, I'll, I'll wait for a little bit uh, longer. I'll start with the handout of mainly texts from Thomas Aquinas um, and Matthew of Aquasparta. But I've got a little introductory bit, which is not difficult to understand, and I will read it from a modern writer, well-known writer on mystical theology, professor at the University of Chicago, Bernard McGinn. And this is what he says about medieval mystical theology. There are two broad ways of conceiving what Cato called mystical union in the medieval period. The first of these, formed in the Latin patristic period and reaching a level of explicit thematization in the 12th century, held that the soul could attain a loving union with God, a unity of spirit whose basic human analogue was to be 
found in the marriage embrace of the lovers portrayed in the Song of Songs. But in the 13th century, first among some of the women vernacular theologians, a second form of understanding this communion began to emerge, a potentially more radical and possibly more questionable understanding, which emphasized the goal of union without difference, uh, the insistence that there is some absolute identity between God and the soul. So there, the idea is that there are basically two ways of thinking about mystical union. One in virtue of which is fundamentally um, the result of some activity on the part of God and the creature. And the example that McGinn gives uh, is of love. Right? So mystical union consists in mutual love between God and the creature. That's view one. View two, some kind of identity. You rarely, rarely find view two in scholastic theologians. So, proportionally, you rarely, rarely find it, and you don't find it at all uh, in the early Franciscans. You do occasionally find it in scholastic theology. I've got an example on the handout, I will go through it. I've just given it to you funnily from a secular master, Henry, Henry of Ghent, writing in 1289. He accepts the mystical right, he's got it from, um, probably, from contacts with. Um, Womenistic theologians, womenistics. Halfway down page two, Henry says this: Nothing like the united soul. Nothing appears other than divine dispositions. By this indwelling of the deity, primarily into the substance of the soul, the soul itself, illuminated by uncreated light, shines, and inflamed by the fire of uncreated charity, burns. And through this has deformity and likeness to God to the extent that this is possible. And this is the crucial bit. So that, as it were, actually it's qualifying it, it neither is nor appears to be other than God, or in essence distinct from Him. Just as iron glowing in fire shines and burns like fire, as it were, neither is nor appears to be other than fire, or a distinct essence from it. So that that is massively a minority view amongst the scholastic theologians. Um, what happens among the scholastic theologians, and therefore among the majority of early Franciscan theologians, is a variation on the first of McGinn's two themes. And you can see why. The stuff I just read out from Henry is pretty reliable. Okay? Let's think about it for a moment. What happened is that um, McGinn's first view, the one that, he, that in, uh, conceives union as, as a mutual activity, or primarily, in fact, when it comes to my period, um, as an activity of the creature, um, there's a big debate whether the activity is, as McGinn presents it there, something appetitive to do with the will and love, or something cognitive and intellectual to do with the intellect and knowledge. So if you like, the intellect thing is a variant on McGinn's um, first category. And how it crops up, it becomes, how it crops up has got to do with the recovery of Aristotle in the West in, in the 12th century and then flourishing in the 13th century. And I'll talk about that in just a moment because I want to you know, punctuate my hard stuff with easier stuff, okay? Um, the basic story is this, the Dominicans, and those associated with them, conceive of union with God as fundamentally cognitive, right? so it's our act of seeing or knowing the divine essence, 
that's what renounces the God. The Franciscan tradition conceives of it as something fundamentally appetitive to do with the will and love. So it's, <coughs> excuse me, it's our love for, for God. That's what unites us to God. And that's the debate. The cognitive thing comes in because of something very interesting that we find in Aristotle. Um, and it was a very popular view in the 13th century about what it is to know something. Um, and Aristotle thought it was like this, that things in the world, material objects, start with them, were sort of composed of, of matter and, and form. Matter is like stuff, and form is like structure. And when you know something, when you sense it, or when you um, have intellectual conceptual knowledge of it, according to Aristotle, what happens is that you receive the form of the object that you know without the matter, which means you receive the form without being made to be an instance of the kind of thing. So if I look at the people in the front row, I receive their forms in my mind without being made to be them. So what you get there is, that in a curious but very obvious sense, I come to be united with the people in the front row in a very particular way. Why? Because their forms are in me. That's a very strong form of union. And if you get cognition like that, you can quickly see why I might be appealing to think of what unites you with God in the realistic vision or inappropriate circumstances is precisely something cognitive, that somehow you know God in some sense in which the divine essence comes to be united with you. And we find that view in Thomas Aquinas. Um, <clears throat> and I've got it on a hand up. I'm just going to get some water. three texts from Aquinas. The first one is designed to show why it should be that it can't be an act of love that is what is unitive. Um, basically what he says is that um, if you're going to be united to something, you've got to attain it in some way. And love is not the kind of thing that could attain its object. And the reason got to do with the, the analysis of love that Aquinas proposes. He thinks love has two components. There's the desire for an absent object, and there's the enjoyment of the object that you've achieved that's present. But he says the enjoyment must follow the presence of the object. So something else must get the object present to you, and he says that's an act of cognition, it's an act of the intellect. Okay? So part of what's going to turn out to be an issue is the correct analysis of love, as you'll see in a moment. Um, that's the first, that's passage number one from Aquinas, so I won't read it out, but that's basically what it says. Um, the third passage, by the way, complicates Aquinas' picture about love, and I'll talk about it very briefly, the third passage from Aquinas. It complicates it because in this third passage you seem to think that there's something else as well, a third component, which is you're actually, as it were, reaching out um, ecstatically to the object actually present to you 
antecedent joy enjoyment of the presence of the object. If that's his view, I mean, don't leave anyone who... Aquinas was a great systematizing thinker, but he wasn't consistent, and he says one thing at one point and another thing at another point. What he says at the other point would undermine his argument against the view that um, union with the divine could be something, should, could, could be something um, appetitive or affective to do with the will. Um, but passage 2 is the passage that is complicated and that I will go through. It's a very famous and rather notorious passage from Aquinas' early commentary on the sentences from the um, uh, early to mid-1250s. Here is what he says. And I'll, I'll explain it bit by bit. Since in every cognition it's necessary that there is some form by which a thing is known or seen, the form by which the intellect is perfected for seeing separate substances is the separate substance itself which is joined to our intellect as a form. What he's talking about there is what I was describing earlier on, where cognition consists in receiving the form of the external object. So the question here is how do we know separate substances are immaterial ones, like angels and God? And he says how we know that is not, as it were, by some it's, it's not by some uh, mental containing of some kind of representation with, which has the same structure, which would be the case in like knowing the people sitting in the front row here, but the actual separated substance itself. So if I were to have cognition of an angel, there's a sense in which the angel, the actual object, really was existing in my mind. And Aquinas says in this text, it's the same in the case of God. It shouldn't be understood, I carry on, um, it shouldn't be understood that the divine essence is, as it were, a true form in our intellect, or that from the divine essence in our intellect is made something unqualifiedly one, as is in the case of natural objects from matter and forms. So he's trying to say that although it really is God there, it's not the case that God belongs to my intellect in the way that the structure of a material body belongs to that material body, because that would literally make me God which oddly enough was more or less what Henry said a bit later on, uh, and that can't be true. Right? Um, rather, the relation is analogous, it's like the relation of form to matter. And this is the, the famous uh, sentence, which Matthew was going to disagree with very strongly. For just as from the natural form, by which something has existence and matter, there is made one being unqualified. So just in, in the case of material object, you get one complete substance from the relationship of matter and form. So, from the form by which the intellect understands, that's going to be the divine essence in this case, and the intellect itself, there is maybe one thing in cognizing. So, somehow, the unity that exists between God and me isn't any kind of, or someone who's changing the meaning of the divine, I should say, because I'm standing here talking to you. Um, that union is a union that's something to do with the operation of cognizing God. So that's a rather obscure view, actually, and Aquinas never quite says it like that again, for various and complicated reasons. I think something like that probably remains his view. So what are we going to say about this if we're a Franciscan? 
and we think that union with God is achieved by love or affection or something like this. Well, I will show you. So this is Matthew Lapisbach writing about 1280. Remember, Thomas died six years before then. Um, and he just argues he, that what, uh, what scholastic theologians do is they just systematically argue against Solopherians and then propose a replacement view. Uh, and so he argues against the two bits of Aquinas' account which I've given you so far, that is to say the analysis of love uh, and the analysis of union by the intellect. So I'll start off with why he doesn't like what Aquinas has to say about love. Remember, the way Aquinas presents it in this context of union with the divine, um, love's got two components, striving for the absent object and the enjoyment of the present object. Um, Matthew's got a, there are loads of arguments in Matthew. I just picked out a couple. Um, against Aquinas' one, this is at the bottom of page two. Um, here's a really simple argument from experience. Why would we think that union with the divine is something appetitive, not something cognitive? Like this, every devoted spirit experiences in itself that it's more by love than by cognition, that it is elevated to God and transcends the mind. So that's an argument from Matthew's own spiritual experience. And then there's another argument, it's argued by analogy, and it's actually not one that's satisfactory in some ways. But I thought I'd share it with you because if you are interested in early Franciscan spirituality, it's a very lovely passage. And it is also an argument against the Aquinas' view of love. Um, I'll read it and go through it. The beatifying good is God himself. But in God there is a character of the good and of the true. And God moves the human mind as good and as true. As true that would be the object of the intellect, God moves by the, ma by the manner of illuminating light, whereas as good, he moves as restorative and, sweet and pleasing sweetness. And then we get an analogy from the spiritual senses, it's just an analogy, as light moves the sight, uh, sweetness moves the taste. And according to Matthew Taste, gives you more intimate union with the object than sight does. And the thought is really easy. Uh, if you're tasting something, it's got to be in your mouth. If you're seeing something, it's got to be separate from you. Right? So taste is more unitive. So if we go with the analogy between um, affection and, and volition and taste and intellect and sight, uh, then the, the argument will get up and running. Um, Yeah, I'll start at um, the next bit. We should keep in mind a few lines down that, that the good can move the affection in two ways, namely as it is apprehended, and this is through the concept of the good, and blah, 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 and in another way, the affection from the entrance of sweetness into the most intimate union. And in this way, the good moves the affection immediately. And this is what it is to move the affection, like that's the will, really and experientially. Um, what he's saying is, I've got two ways of winning something. One is via some mental representation, and one is by the presence of the object itself. 
Okay? And the thought is that in the case of um, beatific union, that's the relevant case you've got. The object is present and you're actually right there and then, reaching out to it in love. And Matthew goes on to say that Aquinas' account can't deal with that because he doesn't have the relevant account of love. And here, this is the next passage where it says against Aquinas' account of will. There are not only two acts of the will, but there is also a better that's Aquinas' desire and Aquinas' pleasure or enjoyment. There is also an act of the will between these two, and that act is love, which is neither desire for the absent object, nor enjoyment of the present object. This is clear, because desire is related to the future and something absent, that love or delight, especially in relation to something spiritual, is of what is had. And this act is different from enjoyment or pleasure, since love is the cause of pleasure. Right? So it's got to be why you take pleasure in the presence of the loved object is precisely that you love it there and then. Not the desire for the absent thing. It's not the pleasure which is caused by the love. It's the love itself for the desired object. That's there with you. That's why you're happy. And that's the bit, the middle bit of love, that's lacking in Aquinas which is why Aquinas thought it couldn't be love that united you to the divine. So we have a different analysis of love, and McGinn's first option for union with the divine becomes a live one. I chose Matthew, among other things, to talk about him, among other things, uh, because it's, it's pretty well known that there's a strong emphasis on the will and affection in Franciscan theology. Um, and it's frequently contrasted with... Um, the Dominican emphasis on the intellect, and you, you see that contrast very nicely in the cases I've given you. Um, but if you look in Bonaventure, you know, on union with the divine, quiver <coughs> cases, there's different things at different times. Uh, and normally, the, the normal Franciscan lineup, Matthew of Aquasvata, was that union with the divine is achieved jointly as a result of the concurrence of both cognitive and repetitive acts. And Matthew was the first person I found who just says straight out, it's the will that's doing it. So that was another reason for choosing uh, Matthew. Oh, have I, how long have I got? I make it 10 minutes, but I don't know how long. 10 minutes, okay. So Matthew also thinks that Aquinas' account of union with the divine via the intellect is going to be false. And this last passage I got from Matthew is the most technical one so far. If you were... You may have noticed something that I was equivocal about earlier on, which is precisely what is the, the nature of the form that enters the intellect or the mind when you cognize something. And Aquinas is... Um, ambiguous or slippery about it in the passage that I just read out to you. Because uh, when I first presented it, I had the example of the people in the front row, uh, and when I have awareness of them, either through sensation or through uh, conceptualization, it's their forms that are entering into my mind. But then what is the nature of the form that gets into the mind? It's not such that it would make me them, because obviously it doesn't, right? So if your theory yielded that result, it would be a false theory. Um, in the, so, 
what a friend normally says is something which has the identical informational content, and he usually calls it a, a likeness, a similitude, a representation. So it's the, what he has in my mind is a representation of them that is precisely isomorphic. Right, to the extent that my sensation and conceptualization is successful, it's precisely isomorphic with the structure of the objects that I'm thinking about. Um, in the passage that we're talking about, uh, the Aquinas passage number, uh, in passage number two on page one, uh, he wants to say it's not a representation that gets into the intellect. So why this is specifically a kind of view of the divine is that it's not a representation of the divine. He has a reason for that, there could be no representation of the divine that was adequate to the task. Um, but then he it's hard to know how it, it, but then he immediately goes around it's, it's a separate substance itself it's a line 3 of passage 2 which is joined to our intellect as a form in the intellect right, as a structure but then he says it's not a true form and this, in the last line the intellect understands and the, the intellect itself the form makes one thing incognizing so it is a divine essence but it's not, right? This is an unsatisfactory position, it's ambiguous. Uh, and so now you've learned two things about Aquinas. He could be unsystematic, and he could be unclear. It's actually very unclear here. You can see why the topic is delicate. It's a difficult subject. And he wants to maintain two things. That could be a representation of God, but it couldn't be that, you and, that God actually informs you in the way that... Uh, my form, my structure informs my stuff. So he's trying to, there's, and there's, there's, in a way, there's no space in his ontology or his theory of mind for what he's trying to say here. And Matthew says, what you're saying is just absurd. Um, it really goes, it's uh, on page four. It's the second of my two passages, I don't even know. Um, and this is, this is indeed the densest passage on my handout, so I will try to go through it slowly. Um, the beatified intellect sees God through his essence, such that the divine essence is the object to which it immediately directs and fixes its view or gaze. And it has the divine essence as its end term. It has something as the end term is to be the object, right? So the divine essence is the object of your intellect. There's no dispute about that. They both agree. Right? The question is, is that uniting, is that unifying in the way that Aquinas says it can be, and Aquinas uh, and Matthew says no. But the divine essence, oh, I, I, I put in it something, just the wrong place in it sometimes. So it's only go like this. But the divine essence is not itself the form of ground for seeing in such a way that it is a form of the intellect. But this is in no way suitable to divine simplicity. Right, so according to Matthew, what Aquinas is proposing is incompatible with the nature of God. He's not especially concerned about the possible pantheistic interpretations of this thing. He is, he is concerned that it would compromise divine simplicity. Why? Because on this view, God would be entering into composition with a creature, and one of the things that Aquinas and, and all other things about, at least until the 17th century I discovered, think about divine simplicity is that it's incompatible with God becoming a part of something else, or at least um, a component of something else, so a, a composite thing. Right, so that view won't do. What are we going to replace it with? In seeing the divine essence, or directing its gaze onto the divine essence, 
there is imprinted on the internet a certain species or likeness by which the, uh, the glance of the intellect is formed and marked. Right, so what he's saying is exactly the thing which Aquinas thought you shouldn't say, that the only way you could know God is by means of a representation. It's not that that representation is a kind of, that that's the thing you're seeing. What it is, is that in order for me to get the right informational content into my mind, a form's got to be there. It can't be the divine essence itself. What's left, it must be an exact representation of divine essence. Once I've got that, I've got the, the informational content I need to direct my gaze at God, the real object, out there. That's the idea. And why are we saying that? Because we think the alternative, which is a crisis issue, is incompatible, incompatible with divine synthesis. Um, yeah, we need to worry about the next bit. That's the basic picture. So what we've got there, I'm going to wind up and I'll wind up my last couple of minutes. What we've got there basically um, is, is, a, is a disagreement on various levels. The most obvious one is a disagreement about the nature of love. But there's also a disagreement about what, under what conditions would direct cogn cognitive vision of the divine essence be possible. And as well, the substance of the dispute there is in order for it to be possible, you have to have the relevant informational content. Aquinas, yeah, that's just the divine essence itself. But in a curiously fudged way, in Matthew, it's got to be a representation because there's no other option, right? It's giving you the relevant informational content to enable you to see the divine essence as it is. Um, I leave it to you to decide which of the views you prefer. You might prefer Henry's view, which I haven't talked about, but there's a lot one could say about it. Um, not least because what Scotus says in response to Henry's view is very interesting, but we don't have time for it, so I'm going to stop. Thank you. Yeah.